Welcome, Petrie. It is a joy and a privilege for me to welcome each and every one of you, regardless of where you're watching from. Some of you are watching from vacation homes. Others of you are watching in your living room or your apartments. We're so glad to be able to stay connected with each and every one of you. It's amazing to consider that it's been about six months of us being in this online form of worshiping together. And after the six months, now that infection rates are going back down and now that we know enough from the practices and learnings from other places, we're excited to announce that next week is going to be our first week of not only online worship, but also worship in our sanctuary. We recognize that as we welcome people back, it's going to be different. It's going to be in a limited capacity. We're gonna start with one service. We'll see how that goes. We could very quickly, depending on demand and registrations, open up a second service for the following weekend. We want you to know for our online community that we are continuing our dedication to our 10 o'clock online worship experience, just as if you've known it, straight to the camera. If you're a part of our mailing list, we're gonna be telling you all about the fall of Peachtree, but everything I'm about to tell you is online. And it's not just about worship, it's also about something that's really important, that life is too dangerous, it's too precarious to go at it all on your own. And so one of the things that we know, even for people who do feel comfortable coming back to worship, that church is meant to be so much more than just an act of gathering in a sanctuary or watching online. It's meant to be in a community. And so we don't just behold what we call at Peachtree, we also belong. And we know that mid-sized communities, what we tend to do, Sunday school classes and those types of things, those types of communities aren't really warranted except for online right now. And so we're encouraging everybody to be a part of a group. You can sign up online right now. You can sign up to be in a group. You can sign up to lead a group. We hope many of you will just take the initiative to gather with some friends. You can gather outside, you can gather inside, you can gather with masks, you can gather without masks. Totally depend on what you're comfortable with, what your risk profile is. We want you to remain safe and it's time for us to start mobilizing the church in new ways. And our commitment to you is not just helping you to get into groups and encouraging you to get into those little gatherings of 10 or less. The other thing that we're trying to do here at Peachtree is to resource you for your Christian nurture and life. And so we have what we call Belong Studies. And in these studies, we are committed to providing you great Christian online content for you to be able to work through on your own and to discuss in groups. I know I'm excited about the class that I'm gonna be teaching online. It's this class here, it's called Confronting Christianity. Christianity Today's book of the year for 2020 that was given at the beginning of this year was done by this author, Rebecca McLaughlin. And not only does she uh, have a fantastic mind and heart and soul for the gospel, she also has a fantastic accent that just sounds smart no matter what she says. I'm gonna be interviewing her for six weeks on really difficult questions that people pose to the faith, like doesn't religion cause violence and isn't religion necessarily exclusive? But there's so many other great classes and opportunities and biblical studies and prayer and all these kinds of things. I'd love for you to go to the website to see the content that we're providing and also for you to take a step in your Christian journey of challenging your heart and your mind and your soul. 
So I am incredibly excited for the fall as the great philosophers from the musical ensemble, the Black Eyed Peas say, let's get it started. And that's what we're gonna be doing here at Peachtree. It's time to launch into the fall in whole new ways. And so today, we're gonna to begin with a word of prayer before we get into our message. So let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, we are incredibly grateful for this church and for the myriad of ways that we have to connect with one another as well as you. And so Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning, as we continue in this journey about David, that we would learn of your reliability in a whole new way. Lord, I pray that we'll personalize this message and I have no idea how important it might be for someone who might be listening. And so I ask Holy Spirit that you will proclaim and not just me. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. And everybody, no matter where you are, say, Amen. Well, you might be familiar if you're from the Georgia area with this image that I want to put up on the screen. 1989 started the building process of what was at the time the largest kind of state-funded project of building something in our state's history, $214 million. This is the Georgia Dome. It took us over three years to build this, held about 80,000 people. It's hosted Super Bowls. It's hosted like college football, basketball, all kinds of amazing things, including the Olympics. And it served us well. And then in September of 2017, on one day, they did this. It is remarkable how quickly something like that can become a pile of rubble. And so if there's anything that I want you to hear and take away from today, it is this. And you can even say this with me wherever you are. It takes a long time to build something great. And it only takes a few moments to tear it down. It only takes... It takes a long time to build something great, but it only takes just that few seconds, that few moments for it all to become a pile of rubble. I remember when Kelly and I moved with our young family to San Antonio, Texas, we moved into a neighborhood that was a brand new neighborhood and every house was a new build. And so we started with a small lot and we began to build that house and we made a thousand decisions to build that house and it took nearly a year in order to do so. Did you know that there are different kinds and colors of grouts? I had no idea. And so you're picking everything and everything starts to build and it's with anticipation that you build this house. And then you get to live in it. 
I remember when we moved to Southern California, we moved in a neighborhood and it wasn't long after we had moved there that I was pushing our girls in the stroller down the street and I noticed that there was some commotion down the street and some kind of big equipment. And so I took the stroller and I moved us down to the street and positioned ourselves. And sure enough, just in a few moments, they took some of that construction equipment and they demolished a house that was sitting there. They were spraying it with water and it only took about 30 minutes for most of that house to become a pile of rubble. I was sitting there thinking about all of the days and the weeks and the months and the decisions and the investments to build that house that we had lived in in Texas and how quickly it can just turn to nothing. It doesn't take very long for a life to fall apart. We're in the midst of a series that we are calling Uncertain Times. And in the midst of this, we know that God is reliable, but yet our lives are not predictable. And we're doing this through the story in the lens of King David. And David is a remarkable character in the Bible that there's actually more ink spilled in the Old Testament on David than on anybody else. It's dedicated to him in so many different ways. And one of the things that we know about King David is that he is forever linked to two different people. If you put the word and after David, two people are going to come to mind. There's David and Goliath, and there's David and Bathsheba. We've talked about David and Goliath and how David is associated with that great triumph, that great victory. Today we're going to talk about Bathsheba and how David is also associated with a terrible failure. And so today, what I want us to kind of figure out is not only how you see failure happen, but also how you know that you can recover. And when I'm talking about failure, I'm not talking about like I didn't study enough to get the score I wanted on that test or I didn't do enough in order for that project to succeed. I'm talking about significant and personal kinds of failure, the failure that really, really hurts. And before we launch into this, I, I want to be clear about one thing. It's really easy to read the story of David and to just kind of brush it off as David's lack of integrity and that he was a bad person. I'll never forget about 15 years ago when a good friend of mine had a moral failing. And because I knew him well, I knew this that if it could happen to him, it could happen to anyone. And that if it could happen to him, it could happen to me. And so as I share this with you today, I encourage you, if you don't have a pen, to grab a pen and a piece of paper. I'm going to share with you some information that comes straight from the Bible that helps us to understand how failure happens so that we can avoid it and how we can recover from it. And so let's tackle the first way that we know that failure sometimes comes. The first way that failure happens is with unresolved love. In the backstory before the David and Bathsheba encounter, you need to understand that there's something that happens even before that. And that is, is that David's relationship with Michael is on the rocks. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, 
Verse 16, and Michael despised him in her heart. She was embarrassed by David's behavior. She was critical of David. David was maybe a little too absent in the relationship. Maybe he had already given up on the relationship. And you can just feel the frigid nature of that relationship as it was fraying apart. I believe that the frontline defense to anything being made whole and staying whole is actually working on the loves and the relationships that you already have. When I have met with couples and there has been a breach in their relationship, I can tell you this, one of the most important conversations that we have is to be able to get to the root of the problem while their relationship wasn't flourishing in order to be able to move forward. What was it that was missing from your relationship, the acceptance, the, the need to matter or the closeness. What was wrong with that relationship? Augustine talks about how sin is a disordered love and when we have res unresolved loves in our life, it will lead to all kinds of destruction. And so first there's unresolved loves and then secondly, there's this, unaccountable isolation. This is how 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 starts. And I love the detail in this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole leader Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. And so here's King David. It's the springtime. And it's time for him to be with the troops, with the generals, and he's supposed to be leading God's army and God's people in order to be able to protect the great people of Israel and that country. And yet, where is David in this moment? We don't know exactly why. He's decided to stay behind. And so he's bored, he's under-challenged, and he is not where he is supposed to be. The David and Bathsheba saga would never have happened if David was where he was supposed to be. If he was living out his call, if he was deploying his own passion. And so one of the things that we recognize is that our unresolved stuff in our relationships, as well as are we hiding in private, not doing what we're supposed to be doing, that those are huge contributing factors to when we experience significant personal failure in our lives. And then there is this, the unheeded warnings. When David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof, he calls a servant over and he asks who she is. And the servant responds, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I do not want you to miss the incredible detail of those three names that are in this story. She is Bathsheba. Names in Hebrew are very explicit in what they mean. They're not hidden meanings. It's what the words and the syllables mean. Bathsheba means daughter of the oath or the covenant. She's also the daughter of Eliam. Eliam, her father, his name means God's own people. And Uriah the Hittite, his name means light of the Lord. And the play on words with that, Uriah was one of those rare handful of people that went to go be with David. 
when he was in the cave and David was hiding and on the run from King Saul, hiding for his own life. When David was in his darkest moments, Uriah the Hittite was, here, was there for him. Now Uriah the Hittite's out fighting what David is supposed to be doing. And yet David is staying behind. And this servant gives warning after warning after warning with each of these names. And yet David does not heed those warnings. Which leads to the next step. An unrestrained sense of more. Jim Collins who wrote the book, Good to Great, also talked about how hubris born of success and an unbridled, undisciplined quest for more is what is some of the most destructive things in an American company. And what we see, what David does with his leadership, with his over 30 years of success, David not only looks, David not only keeps his gaze there, he then says to go get her. And remember, this is the king speaking. She doesn't have a choice. And so she is brought to David. Almost every significant breakdown morally in our lives is attributable to an undisciplined form, an unrestrained form of having to have the next thing. And so whatever it is that's in your life that always has to be more and better and faster. In fact, the New Testament picks up on this theme when it talks about greed as a form of idolatry because within each and every one of our hearts, there is this desire to have to have more and more and bigger and bigger and better and better. And that unrestrained more leads to the worst part of all, and that is the unhinged cover-ups. David attempts in three different ways to try to cover up what he's done. First, he invites Uriah to come home and to be with his wife to maybe cover up David's pregnancy with Bathsheba. That doesn't work because Uriah is loyal to his soldiers and won't go home. Secondly, he tries to get Uriah drunk that doesn't work. And so thirdly, here you see David gives the order to put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw for him so he will be struck down and die. The cover-up for David is worse than even the original crime. There will be untold consequences of that. And if you haven't read David's story recently, and if you want to find out how bad it can really get on that rooftop, in the very same location, you can go to 2 Samuel 16, and for extra credit, you can see the horror of the consequences that continue because of David's unbridled, undisciplined, unrestrained more and the attempt to cover up, cover up, and cover up. I've counseled a lot of couples, and I can tell you this, and this has been true in my own life, Anything that we try to cover up or lie about probably will be worse than the original sin. I remember when I was a little boy, and this was back in the dark ages where, you know, TVs were like furniture in your room. 
and they took up so much of the room and that you couldn't record television, there was no on-demand, there was no Netflix. Like when a show came on, it was on. And I would often in the afternoon or on a Saturday morning have some time for there to be some time of watching some cartoons. And I don't know if I was in like the second grade or the third grade. And, um, and this would have been, you know, like right at the turn between the 70s and the 80s. And there was a vacuum in, uh, you know, tastefulness in decor in the 70s and 80s. Can we all stack hands and agree on that? That like the lime green shag carpets, like these things were not from God. And, um, and so we had this big kind of green lime carpet. And there was only one rule when it came to, um, to kind of food and beverage in the other room. It was to keep anything that could possibly stain badly in the kitchen. There was a pitcher of Kool-Aid on a hot Texas day. And I remember pouring a big glass of that Kool-Aid and rushing in to go to watch my favorite cartoon. And as I came in and I sat down on, you know, kind of on the floor in front of the couch and tuned into the television set, somehow I wasn't paying attention and I knocked that Kool-Aid over and it spilled all over the floor. And I didn't want to miss my cartoon. I didn't really know how to clean that mess up. But I saw a really interesting solution that was right before me. God invented this thing called an ottoman. And it has wheels on it. And you can move the ottoman and I could strategically locate it above the stain. And that way, look, problem solved, good as new. And so I moved that ottoman, and that ottoman stayed there for, I don't know, about a week till probably the next time that uh, someone in my family decided to vacuum. In this instance, it was my mother, and there was a shriek from the other room when she noticed the big stain of the Kool-Aid. I'm sorry, Mom, if you're watching this right now. I don't feel like I owe you one, though, because that carpet was so ugly to begin with. I feel like I was doing you a favor, actually, in having to replace that carpet. But the reality is, is that that was probably a solvable problem had I only been willing to admit what I had done right out of the gate. But what happens when we sin, when we fail, is that we try to close ourselves off and we hide ourselves. And because of that, we make everything worse. David's sin with Bathsheba was bad. David's sin with Uriah was horrific. And so we need to realize that there are ways that we fail. And yet, in spite of all of that, one of the things that I love about King David, one of the things that amazes me the most about him is that with King David, we not only get to see his actions, we also get to see his inner soul. And there is a prayer, there is a psalm that shows us how you not only fail, but how you can also recover. And so let's look at a couple of parts of Psalm 51 to see how restoration can happen. And let's start with this. It starts with unfailing love. David starts out this psalm by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Notice David doesn't say, Have mercy on me, O God, because I've gotten my act together. Or, Have mercy on me, O God, because I feel really bad for what I've done. 
or have mercy on me, O God, because I promise I will never do anything like that again. That is not how this prayer begins. It says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Renee Schleffer put it so well when he says, God's forgiveness does not depend on David's behavior, but on God's character. It is not your behavior that unlocks the heart of God. It is his steadfast commitment and love to you and me that makes all of this possible. And so it begins with God's unfailing love. And then we see it take the next step. How can you recover? Not just with unfailing love, but with uncompromising friendship. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now here's what's interesting to me. David says that he is able to see his sin. But it wasn't always like that. For you see, after David and Bathsheba and after the murder of Uriah the Hittite, Nathan, who's a very good friend to David, tells David in his throne room one day a story. It's basically a parable of what David has done, but he's talking about it kind of in a, in a farming kind of metaphor with a sheep. And David is enraged by the story that Nathan tells. And in doing so, he says that person ought to be brought to justice. And then Nathan famously says, David, you are that man. You see, David could still recognize sin, but he could not recognize it in himself. And I'm here to tell you that without good friends, without solid community, part of what we're talking about of asking you to get into a group is to be bound with people who know you and love you and care for you who will not compromise on the truth. David could still see sin. He just couldn't see it in himself. And Nathan was that uncompromising friendship that helped David to recognize his own brokenness. And so after uncompromising friendship comes this. Unmistakable humility. David prays, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David's heart has gotten to the point where it's shattered. It's broken. And healing and contrition are usually found on the other side of that brokenness. I remember when I started out in graduate school, I had my heart broken from a long relationship. And I can honestly tell you that that was one of the most important things to happen to me. Every relationship dating-wise that I had been into to that point was one where I was always in control of the relationship. I held back just enough in order to always be the one who had all the cards in the relationship. And in having my heart broken, I learned what it means to be willing to be honest and vulnerable with another person. I can't imagine how I would have missed and muffed up the relationship that God had given to me and now my wife Kelly 
had I not already had my heart broken and understood what it means to not be in control, but to be yourself. And then David prays this. David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Here's the thing. The thing is, is that you have a choice between a willing spirit and a willful spirit. And if you maintain that willful, disobedient, striding, safe self-righteousness attitude, you'll never get to the great restoration of healing and forgiveness. So with the broken heart also comes unquenchable joy from a willing spirit being open. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In that same era where I had my heart broken, I remember just feeling really bad for myself, really sorry for myself. And I lived on a hallway where we had a community kind of dorm bathroom. And I opened the door to the dorm bathroom and there was a guy in the sink area of that bathroom who was brushing his teeth. And this guy came from um, kind of a different culture and had a very different way of brushing his teeth. For him, brushing his teeth was like a full contact sport where he would get almost in a three-point stance under over the sink and he would brush his teeth with such vigor and with so much toothpaste that he would have toothpaste like dripping down his arm. He would almost have to shower after he brushed his teeth. And I had seen him do this several times, but with my broken and now willing spirit, as soon as I walked in and I saw that, even though I was feeling really sorry for myself, all of a sudden I just busted out laughing. He didn't think it was funny that I thought he was funny, but the joy of the Lord came to me from letting go of a willful spirit and realizing that life was going to move forward, that life does move on, and that joy can be found on the other side of our brokenness. Maybe right now you have lost the joy in this COVID season. And I am telling you that joy is still available for you and for me. And the last stage of recovery is uninhibited praise. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. I want to show you the picture of a woman who is a faculty member in writing at the University of Akron. And her name is Auburn Sandstrom. And a little while ago, because she's a great writer, I'm just going to read it to you. She said this. I was curled up in a fetal position on a filthy carpet in a cluttered apartment. I'm in horrible withdrawal from a drug addiction. And I have this little piece of paper. It's dilapidated because I've been folding it and unfolding it, folding it and unfolding it. But I could still make out the phone number on it. I'm in a state of bald terror. My husband is out and I'm trying to get a hold of some of those drugs that we need. And yet right behind me, sleeping in the bedroom, is my baby boy. And I know I'm not going to get Mother of the Year award. In fact, at the age of 29, I was failing at a lot of things. But I decided in that moment I needed to get clean. For I was going to lose soon the most precious thing to me, that little baby boy. 
I was so desperate at the moment that I wanted to make use of that phone number. It was something that my mother had sent to me and she said, this is a Christian counselor and maybe sometime you could call this person. It was two o'clock in the morning, but I punched in the numbers anyway. And I heard a man say, hello. And I said, hi, I got this number from my mother. Uh, Do you think that maybe you could talk to me? He said, yes, yes, of course. What's going on? I told him I was scared and that my marriage had gotten pretty bad. And before long, I started telling him other truths, like that maybe I have a drug problem. And this man just sat with me and he listened to me. And he had such a kindness and a gentleness. He said, tell me more. Oh, that must hurt. That must be awful. And he stayed up with me the whole night, just being there until the sun rose. And by then, I was feeling calm. The raw panic had passed. And I was starting to feel okay. I was very grateful to him. And so I said... I really appreciate you and what you've done for me tonight. How long have you been a Christian counselor? There was this long pause. And he said, Auburn, please don't hang up on me. I'm so afraid to tell you this. And he paused again. You've got the wrong number. I'm not a therapist. But I'm really honored to talk with you. I didn't hang up on him. I never got his name. And I never spoke to him again. But the next day, I felt like I was shining. I discovered that in a random universe, there was love. And that it could be unconditional. And that some of it was for me. And it also became possible now as a teetotaling single parent to raise up that precious baby boy into a magnificent young scholar and athlete who graduated from Princeton in 2013 with honors. And then she writes this. In the deepest, blackest night of despair. If you can just get one pinhole of light. All of the grace comes rushing in. I started this message by talking about how it takes a long time to build something great. And it only takes a few moments to tear it down. That's the truth, but it's not the end of the story. The full truth is that it also only takes one pinhole of light for all of the grace to come rushing in. And maybe that's where you are right now. That you know that in your life you failed. And that you're scrambling to recover. And that all you need is that little pinhole of grace right now. And through that hole, all of grace can come flooding and rushing into your soul. And so I want to show you how all this holds together because I know this has been a lot. I'm going to show you this slide. I encourage you to take a picture of this. If you haven't been taking notes, pull out your phone right now. Take a picture of this. We'll leave it up here on the screen for a moment here while I talk about it. That in our failure, unresolved love can become unfailing love. That unaccountable isolation can become uncompromising friendship. That unheeded warnings can turn into unmistakable humility that unrestrained more can become unquenchable joy. 
and that even unhinged cover-ups can turn into uninhibited praise. Oh, Lord, open up my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Maybe Psalm 51 is something that you need to take out sometime this week and pray for yourself and to discover those aspects of your life that have not fully recovered from the failures of your own soul. And to put a pin in that, to make sure you see this fully, there will be horrible consequences for David and his sin. It will involve death and, either for, and even further exile for him. But here's what you need to know. Even through Bathsheba, the promise of David of a legacy, it is through Bathsheba, it's in that line that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the great Redeemer and Rescuer comes. And if God can bring Jesus out of David and Bathsheba, imagine what he can do in your life. And so let's pray. Almighty and loving Father, I pray that amidst what falls down quickly in our lives, we will begin the process of rebuilding our souls in partnership with you. Lord, I pray for anybody who's on the precipice of failure and needs to learn how to come back from the edge of that cliff. And I pray for anybody who needs to recover from failure and needs to be able to pray like David, a prayer like Psalm 51. Lord, thank you that even through one little pinhole, grace can come flooding in and that even through our failures, your love, which is unfailing, will never, ever let us go. And we pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.